Section 2 of Scholasticism by Walter Waddington Shirley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Scholasticism, Part 2. We return to the question, what was the scholastic philosophy? We have seen that, as a matter of history, it was the philosophy which arose among the nations of Western Christendom, when they had so far thrown off the weight which the traditions of imperial Rome had imposed as to be able to think for themselves, without feeling at every moment bowed down by the weight of an authority which they dared not gainsay. We have seen also that the introduction of this philosophy was a great intellectual revolution, involving a fundamental change in the system of mental training then prevalent, by which the discipline of a living school of thought was substituted for the dry and tasteless study of the writers of the lower empire. But in order to appreciate the magnitude of the change effected, it must be borne in mind that it was but the educational and learned phase of a yet wider movement, which consisted in so far throwing off the traditions of ancient Rome, as to build up, with the bold hand of freedom, an entirely new form of government, to establish new relations between the various kingdoms which still owned a shadowy allegiance to the empire, and to express the new forms of national life in a new school of art, and before long in a new and vernacular literature. And in every case the great primary condition by which these changes are governed, that which has made them possible at all, that which governs their direction when made, is this, that the authority of ancient tradition has been just so far thrown off as to make the free movement possible. In politics, for example, men no longer attempt, as under the rule of the Visigoths, to keep up the old Roman magistracies, and to govern a new society with all the machinery of an old. They no longer attempt, like Charlemagne, to restore the old empire in its completeness, trusting by altered modes of administration to adapt it to modern uses. They have learnt a bolder course. They form for themselves a polity in which much may be traced to Rome, but of which the leading principles are essentially their own, the expression of their own wants and of their own political ideas. In philosophy it is just the same, and the school of Alcuin is in precisely the same stage of half-emancipation from the past as is the government of his imperial master. But there is another aspect of the condition which it is essential to bear in mind. Compared with the ages which had preceded it, the emancipation of the eleventh century is a marvel. But the freedom which it enjoyed was relative and not absolute. In the first place, we find that the Middle Ages were profoundly unconscious of the extent to which they had deviated from the past. They reared up the fabric of nationality, and bowed all the while, with a vague but respectful homage, before the effete majesty of the empire. Latin was to them the only language in the true sense of the term, the only tongue which was worthy to be employed in the service of religion or of science. Yet they created the vernacular literature which supplanted it in the hearts of men. They deemed Roman the only architecture, and while they thought to imitate it, there arose under their hands the clustered shaft and the pointed arch, instinct with the luxuriance of a younger life. They bowed in their philosophy before the ipse dixit of Aristotle, and they studied him until he emerged from their hands half a Platonist and half a father of the Church. The freedom of the Middle Ages was thus exercised under a strange unconsciousness of its existence, or at least of its extent. They considered themselves as humbly adapting to their own use the heritage bequeathed to them by the past. It is impossible to insist too strongly on the importance of realizing this peculiar condition of things in any attempt to understand the intellectual phenomena of the time. Men contrived by means of it to retain, in the midst of universal innovation, a profound reverence for authority. They looked to authority, therefore, for their premises, and building, as they believed, 
upon foundations of adamant became almost fearless as to the conclusions which they might erect upon them and followed out their thoughts with a hardihood and an exuberant ingenuity of speculation which has perhaps never been surpassed this then is the fundamental character which is impressed on the scholastic philosophy by the conditions under which it rose viz that it derives its premises not from self-consciousness or from any ultimate analysis of the human mind but absolutely from authority and yet when its premises are once given it operates upon them with a fearlessness proportioned to the unbounded confidence which it places in them to combine and systematize what it found dispersed to supply what it found deficient and reconcile what appeared contradictory this was the work which it proposed to itself to originate it deemed beyond its province and this character of the scholastic philosophy i have ventured to call fundamental because from it we can immediately derive the most remarkable properties of the system throughout this lecture for example i have been speaking of scholastic philosophy it might admit of a doubt whether scholastic theology would not be a more correct expression so nearly identical were the two subjects to the mind of the middle ages and this intimate union of philosophy with theology which is perhaps of all facts connected with the subject the most familiar to us is an immediate consequence of the general position at which we have just now arrived for in fact the sources from which the schoolmen derived their premises were almost entirely theological and were gathered indeed in great part from the works of the latin fathers any one who has ever looked at the sentences of peter the lombard will the more easily understand my meaning that celebrated work as is well known was long employed as the universal textbook of theology and was taken by some of the greatest schoolmen as the framework of their own teaching yet it is nothing more than a series of extracts from the latin fathers and the popes so tessellated together as to construct a system of theology out of the most unsystematic of all possible materials in this then their most popular textbook is fairly exhibited the material upon which the schoolmen delighted to operate from the fathers thus collected they would gather not only a body of theology but interwoven with it a good deal of philosophy wholly or almost wholly marked with alexandrian and platonic influences but they would look in vain to the fathers for anything approaching to a philosophic method or even for anything which could properly be described as systematic theology yet the whole bent of the scholastic movement led them as we have seen to systematize and they wanted therefore not only the matter upon which to work but a method upon which to proceed what course they might have taken if they had been compelled to construct from the foundations a new philosophical method it seems in vain to speculate happily for them they found in the organon of aristotle the very thing they needed an unrivalled method and at the same time so little else so little of positive philosophical doctrine that aided by their reverence for the past they were able to hide from themselves all discrepancies between aristotle and the platonizing fathers and to make use of the greek philosopher as their master in the task of constructing a systematic theology aristotle became to them thus a kind of supplementary father and so lofty was the reverence which they conceived for him that for centuries he was quoted habitually as the philosopher and among the minor problems of scholastic theology none was more warmly debated than the question whether the soul of aristotle had found a place in the limbus patrum the intermediate abode of the souls of the saints of the older covenant we see then here the reason why in the hands of the schoolmen the relations of theology and philosophy should have become more than commonly intimate for while they derived their method from a heathen philosopher they applied that method not to their own free thoughts but almost exclusively to the matter which they had gathered from the works of the latin fathers 
turning then from the method to the matter we are in a position now to consider the salient points which difference scholastic from patristic theology for we are able to see clearly the essential difference between the personal position of the fathers and that of the schoolmen the lot of the early church was cast upon days of warm and restless controversy with heathenism or judaism opened and avowed or with suppressed tendencies towards both venting themselves in the form of heresy from the first dawn of theology in the great conflict with gnosticism down to the time when latin letters were hushed in the crash of the falling empire generation after generation had been called to contend for some master truth some element most generally of the great doctrine of the trinity which was for the moment the key of the position and for the maintenance of which the whole forces of the church had to unite their untiring efforts the writings of the fathers therefore speaking generally were penned with an immediate practical object they are written without system and so far as the works of any single father possess any inner unity it is derived from their relation not to any absolute scheme of theology but to the central question of the day even though that question might be one which in the eyes of another generation would be sure to occupy no more than a secondary place each great father then speaking broadly clusters his theology round the critical controversy of his day and if he is led to make dogmatic statements upon any other point of faith he does so for the most part incidentally as for instance when some doctrine is appealed to as a motive for christian conduct or as indirectly bearing on the subject of the immediate argument to these circumstances no doubt the theology of the fathers owes a part of its preeminence for it is the theology so to speak not of the study but of the camp it has in it the din and the fire and the fury of war but for this very reason it is essentially unsystematic the position of the schoolmen was as opposite to this as possible they received the body of doctrine which came down to them from the early church with the implicit faith of children they asked not to question but to understand it not to inquire whether it was true but to know the relations of the several doctrines to each other their connection as the parts of one majestic whole the celebrated maxim of st anselm credo ut intelligam might be taken as the motto not of his works alone but of the whole scholastic theology therefore the schoolmen became the founders not so much of a theology as of a theological system but it will no doubt be urged the middle ages were not marked by any cessation but rather by the revival of theological controversy and so unquestionably they were but if i mistake not there is a clear and cardinal distinction between the controversies of the middle ages and those of the early church all the great controversies of the early church turned upon a question of fact whether our blessed lord did indeed rise with a real body from the dead whether he was indeed god equal with the eternal father whether the holy ghost was indeed the lord whether he spake by the prophets of old whether he now implants in the heart the necessary germ of grace such and such like were the controversies which stirred the church for the first four centuries of its existence the great controversies of the middle ages turned on the other hand not upon the facts of the faith but upon the mode of the divine operation in the argument between lanfranc and berengar which occupied as we have seen the opening of the scholastic period the reality of our blessed lord's presence in the eucharist was unchallenged by either party it was the mode of the divine presence which was alone in dispute in the next generation another instance may be found in the great work of st anselm upon the purpose of the incarnation or as it might be more properly entitled upon the purpose of our lord's death upon the cross the fact that our blessed lord did by his death take away our sins and that his sacrifice of himself was in some sense vicarious 
is abundantly laid down by the fathers as indeed it could not fail to be but of the exact mode in which that sacrifice had operated to effect the work of our redemption no ancient father had treated and it was reserved for st anselm to take up the suggestions which they had casually let fall and to work out that theory of the redemption which has from his time downward been most generally received within the christian church a third great question the doctrine of predestination will appear probably to be a more doubtful instance and it is worth observing that it is precisely on the confines of the patristic and scholastic periods that it emerges into its chief importance it is the last patristic it is the first scholastic controversy for indeed it belongs to the time of origina and of charlemagne rather than to the purely scholastic times at all and yet this is in a manner the exception which proves the rule the theological question which to st augustine was the real point at issue was the fact of our dependence upon divine grace the metaphysical point for which origina chiefly cared is the mode in which the freedom of the human will is to be reconciled with the existence of a personal god but even if it should be thought that some exceptions to the rule may be detected on the one side or on the other i am persuaded that the main principle will still stand its ground that the fathers namely contended for the facts upon which the faith is built the schoolmen for the ulterior questions which arise upon the mode of the divine action indeed a simple comparison between the two great creeds on the one hand and the general position of the schoolmen on the other will suffice to show that some distinction of the kind must exist between the theology of the two periods another point of decided contrast between the fathers and the schoolmen may serve again to show how much explains itself when we have once formed a clear conception of the historical position of the two by nothing are the early fathers more clearly differenced from each other than by the estimate which they severally formed of the value of philosophy on the one hand we have origen and clement and the whole school of alexandria to whom the christian was the true gnostic and who recognized in the philosophy of plato a preparation for the coming of christ as true in its degree as was the legislation of moses on the other we have the quid academiae et ecclesiae of tertullian and the stern repudiation of the polluted learning of the world which stamped we might almost say the whole church of the west and in this antagonism there is nothing incidental or superficial it is one of those contrasts which have their root very deep in human nature and yet when we turn to the schoolmen every trace of it seems to be effaced it still remains true no doubt that there exist the same two classes of minds those to which a various culture has a value almost priceless and those to which it is but an ensnaring vanity or to speak more justly a sin without temptation yet the severest minds of the age have scarcely a word to say against the dialectical studies of the schools the marked opposition to philosophy which we saw in the early church has utterly died down and disappeared the explanation of this change is a simple one enough the philosophy which was known to the early church was derived from pagan sources and might well seem likely to infuse into the christian faith the subtle poison of heathenism the philosophy of the middle ages on the other hand was wholly and purely christian and owed nothing but its method to the literature of the heathen world to philosophy in itself the church was not opposed but only to the introduction under the shelter of philosophy of the principles of a disguised heathenism there are in conclusion two other points which involve no comparison with the fathers but which are too characteristic of the schools to be altogether passed over even in this rapid sketch the first is the remarkable course which was run by the great controversy between the realists and nominalists the two parties derived their names from the side which they took in the discussion on the nature of genera and species 
between the extreme views that the individual being was but a copy more or less imperfect of some actual celestial archetype and on the other hand that the individual alone was real and that genera and species were mere names representing the results of induction there were several shades of opinion but it was by their inclination to the one side or to the other that the adherents of the rival schools were distinguished the controversy was of course not a new one on the one side had they been more deeply learned the disputants might have ranged plato on the other their master aristotle and it is one moreover of those imperishable controversies which seem to renew themselves with every great change which passes upon the world of letters what is remarkable is not the existence of the controversy but the singular course which it took on the first opening of the schools it engaged the foremost combatants st anselm had indeed a comparatively easy battle against the crude extravagancies of Rosselin. but in the next generation st bernard met with an antagonist intellectually at the least his equal in the person of the celebrated abelard yet the triumph of the realists was at once decisive and enduring and nominalism was heard no more until early in the fourteenth century in the first decay of the schools it was revived by william of ockham what is remarkable is not only that nominalism met with so little favor but that all its great maintainers Rosselin, abelard ockham were men the tenor of whose lives added no weight to their opinions and who lay under suspicion of heresy if not of unbelief it may no doubt be true that nominalism in its extreme form does lead to materialism but a conceptualism like that of abelard which yet ranked him with the nominalists is substantially the philosophical creed which in modern times has met with the most large acceptance and which certainly has not entailed upon its holders the taint or the suspicion of heresy it seems clear then that there was something peculiar in the condition of the times which gave a decided advantage to the opinions of the opposite school One in the first place let me remind you of the fact which i fear you will be tired of hearing that at least in the earlier stages of scholasticism the method alone was from aristotle the matter almost wholly from the fathers and that the philosophy of the fathers was in the main platonic the conclusions of the realists were therefore half implied in the premises to which both parties appealed the cause of the nominalists must have been strong indeed to have prevailed at such a disadvantage by the fourteenth century however men had become aware of the real opinions of aristotle and so the balance of authority was to a great extent redressed and the field was thus prepared for a revived school of nominalists two but in the second place it must be borne in mind that in an age in which historical criticism is unknown a most exaggerated importance is sure to attach to anything in the nature of an a priori evidence of the truths of the christian religion this realism could offer and nominalism could not for nominalism begins and ends in an analysis of the human mind and is equally complete whether there be a god or no to realism the existence of a god is a philosophical postulate the last characteristic of the scholastic learning which i propose very briefly to notice is its ingrained hostility to criticism especially of an historical kind the evidence of this hostility abounds on every hand we read it unmistakably for instance in the ready acceptance of the fable of brute the trojan or of the forged decretals of isidore and more broadly in the fact that from the time of malmesbury no historian in the modern sense of the word arose for centuries no man that is capable of grouping events together of depicting the policy of a monarch or of balancing the scales of evidence and malmesbury it will be remembered belongs to the short-lived school who struggled vainly on behalf of classical learning against the rising tide of scholasticism 
Indeed, in so profound a torpor were the critical faculties buried, that no age affords more marvellous proofs of the inequalities of the human mind, and of the force which the current of circumstances possesses to determine the direction of its action. How wonderful, for example, does it appear that the intellect which penned the Summa of Aquinas should have accepted the forged decretals. Here again, as in every other point, the explanation of the peculiar character of the Middle Ages is to be read, in a great measure, in the position which they occupy in history. The immediate past was, at least to the eleventh century, dreary and dark enough. The ulterior past was the source of a body of truth to be received with unquestioning reverence. There was nothing, therefore, in the past to attract the activity of the intellect. And yet we should be wrong to suppose that the past was a blank to the mind of the Middle Ages. Where the critical faculties lie dormant, a priori reasoning grows with a rank luxuriance, until it is hard to say where the realm of reason ends and the realm of fancy begins. The same habit of mind which made the theologian inevitably a realist peopled the past with legend or with forgery, expressive of the imaginary antecedents of the existing state of society. The ecclesiastical school of Cluny finds its counterpart in the forged decretals, the bloom of early chivalry in the legends of King Arthur and of Charlemagne. But the attitude of theologian and of poet alike towards the past is one not of criticism, but of tranquil homage. And wherever the serious activity of the intellect or the deeper emotion of the heart is concerned, the eye of the Middle Ages is bent intensely forward. And hence, in great part, the unequaled power which abstract principles then possessed to sway the course both of individuals and of nations. Hence the fervor with which a new impulse spread from class to class and from land to land. Hence also, no less, the exquisite sense of beauty and the instinctive eye for proportion, which seem so often to be found in harmony with simplicity and definiteness of aim. Hence, again, the peculiar fascination which the scenes of the last judgment and the circumstances of the future state possessed for religious art and feeling. Hence, lastly, and above all, the absorbing unity of purpose, the glorious completeness of self-sacrifice, with which men, whose hearts the Spirit of God had touched, threw themselves at once and forever into his service. Doubtless in all this, in the thought, the art, the religion of the Middle Ages, there is something which to us seems narrow. And it is narrow precisely because it looks only to the future, and to that future as seen through the vista of feudal society. Yet, on the other hand, let us remember that something of narrowness is an almost inevitable condition of that concentration of thought and purpose by which the highest victories of humanity have been achieved. And most of all is this true of the efforts of an infant civilization. In this, at least, the much-abused parallel between human society and the individual mind holds good, that unless its earlier efforts be directed into some special and somewhat narrow channel, it will be apt to waste its scattered energies and to develop a feeble manhood. Every remarkable advance of human society has, in effect, been made under such special conditions, and to understand in each case the true nature and bearing of the conditions is of no mean value for the intelligent study of history. End of Part 2 End of Scholasticism, a lecture delivered before the University of Oxford by Walter Waddington Shirley.